Well, uh, as most of you know, I think all of you know, we've been marching through this sermon series exploring selected psalms and are coming to the conclusion of our series by delving into each of the last five songs. These last five psalms are particularly and directly and centrally praises raised to God. They're called halal psalms, halal being from the Hebrew and reflecting the praise that is always to be brought before our Lord. And each of these last five psalms begins and ends with words in English, praise the Lord. And in between, what we generally find are those praises either being raised or reasons for praises being listed. This particular psalm we come to tonight, Psalm 148, could also, however, be identified as belonging to a second group of five psalms. Five of the psalms that reflect the beauty of the natural realm created by God. God's creation and God's beauty in creation are discoverable through the words of this psalm. We really live in our age in a part of the world and in an era of time where we find people who might be considered abuser of nature. But then there are other people as well who might be called worshipers of nature. As Christians, we obviously should not be among those who would be happy in abusing what God has made. But we also, we also certainly must only worship God, not creation. The beauty of this world is what points us to the one who should be worshipped. And that should become especially apparent in this psalm because we can see in it that in regard to the natural world, the natural world actually joins with us in the praises that are being lifted to God. Now, the psalm itself is neatly divided into two main parts, and that those two main parts are then followed by a closing word. The first six verses direct our attention to the heavens. The next six to the world below the heavens. And I think there is a parallel way in which the thoughts presented through that first section and the second section are laid out side by side, almost as if we can explore them together. They are creating parallel thoughts, even though they are engaged with different realms. The final two verses address a separate reason to praise our God, which involves God's care for his special people. So without any more ado, let's turn to the word of God. Let's read and study it together. And let's do that after first turning once again to the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father, we come to this text and we ask, as always, that you would be the one who teaches us. We ask that through it, by your Spirit, we would learn more of you. We ask also, Lord, that as we read it, we would understand better what you require of us. And we ask, Lord, that in this particular psalm, as we see things said about the world, that we would also remember that into the world you have sent your Son. We ask, Lord, that we would understand that it is through him that we have salvation and because of him that we have all the more reason to praise your most holy name. So, Lord, guide us tonight, we pray, as we always do, and we will glorify you for the work you do in us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So let's read the psalm, Psalm 148. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. 
Praise him, all his host. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures from all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the word of the Lord, or, or excuse me, for the people of Israel are near to him. Praise the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, I'm going to introduce you to a new word tonight. At least I suppose it will be a new word to you. It's a word that was new to me. I just learned of it last week. It's the word umbrophile. Umbra, the first part of the word, comes from the Latin, and it means shadow. And phile, P-H-I-L-E, comes either from the Latin or from the Greek, and it means one who loves. Put those two parts together and you'll know that literally the word is referring to one who loves shadows. But that still might not mean all that much until I add that an umbrophile is a person, a word that's used to describe a person who chases the shadows caused by a total eclipse of the sun. One more thing that you might not know is that there will be many an umbrophile descending upon a narrow band of land in Chile or Argentina on Tuesday because in those countries, following along a narrow path, will be visible, cloud covering allowing it, a total eclipse of the sun. And I sort of would like to be there too. While I do not consider myself obsessive about it, and though I would not call myself an eclipse chaser or an umbrophile, I do so much appreciate the awe-inspiring event of seeing a total solar eclipse. Seeing it within that narrow range or band where it can be seen in its totality. It was now nearly two years ago that I stood in the Agate Fossil Beds National Monument in Nebraska. Stood there with thousands of other people witnessing for the first time for myself a total solar eclipse and seeing it in its totality. And that event has become one of my favorite events to talk about when I preach. I think this is now the third sermon in two years that I've mentioned it. I hope you don't tire of it. I hope my words can do it some justice because it really is an awe-inspiring experience. I wore those special solar eclipse glasses. I had all sorts of special lenses on my camera. All around me were people with telescopes as we all awaited that two-minute event in which the moon would pass just at the right distance between the sun and the earth to place that part of the sun 
into the moon's large shadow, blotting out the view of the sun nearly in its entirety. Totality comes, and the day of the high sun immediately becomes as if it's dusk. It's as if you could view a sunset not just by looking to the west, but by looking anywhere around you. All around is this continuing circle of beauty of what from experience we would think to be the setting sun, but it's midday. And in the midday, in the midday sun, some of the stars then actually come out and they're visible to the eye. The heat of the day even becomes suddenly cool. Those protective lenses in totality, well, they can now come off as you can now stare at the perfectly covered sun that without the eclipse would have otherwise destroyed your eyes as you gazed upon it for a long time, for just a little time. And as one looks at the now covered sun, witnessing the, the, the eclipse, you see a, a ring around that's caused by the moon, a ring around the moon, a corona of white light around the disk in which the sun reflects. And then as the totality of the eclipse is about to end, there is a first flare of light that comes from a single point to make it appear as if there is now a diamond ring of the ring around the corona, on the ring around the corona. The ring that has been created by the corona has just this one sparkling spot that makes it appear as if a diamond ring. It's really an amazing event. It's worthy to be chased, worthy so long as the one who is chasing it is not chasing the eclipse as a worshiper of it or of nature, but as a worshiper of the one who has made it all happen. An eclipse like that doesn't just happen. None of it happens unless the larger sun and the smaller moon are exactly at the right distance of separation, approximately 93 miles apart. The sun and the moon must be exactly that right distance apart and of the correct relative sizes in relationship to the earth, or none of it happens. A larger moon or a change in distance related to the sun and the earth, and there is no circular sunset, no coolness to the hot day, no stars visible, no diamond ring. Such an amazing natural event, visible in the sky, and it's the artful canvas containing the creative work of our almighty God. He crafts the eclipse. Its beauty is his artistry. And when our attention in the psalm is directed to the sun and the moon in verse 3, it's so that we would more clearly know that it is God, the God of the universe, who is to be praised for each such heavenly work. His artistry is seen in the sun and the moon even when it's not in eclipse. And in the, in the com complete eclipse, excuse me, it's seen even more. But his artistry is seen also in just things that we look at every day, things like the stars. Praise comes from the stars, and that should cause us to praise as well. We should always stand in awe of his creative work, the creative work that he does in the heavens. We should praise him as we see the waters fall upon the earth in a way that praises him as well. But the awe that we hold for heavenly things, created things, are at heart designed really to show us that it is only the creator, only God who is to be praised. Even the created 
realm of the heavens is really praising him. Not only that, but we also see in this first part of the passage that there are heavenly beings praising God. The angels praise him. The host of the heavens praise him. All that is in the heavens is praising our God. And why is that? Why does every heavenly being, every heavenly object praise our Lord? Well, because as we are told in verse 5, God has made this heavenly creation. Even the angels and the hosts of the heavens were made by him, for he commanded and they were created. And he has established these heavens, established them to be forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. By the way, mark your calendars. The next total solar eclipse in this country, visible in this country, is April 8, 2024. And there will be another one even nearer to us in Montana at dawn on August 23, 2044. I might need a little of your help to get there. I'll be nearly 90 years old. I'm not an umbrophile. Well, the psalmist moves us downward next. He moves our attention away from the heavenly realm in order to bring us down to the earth. The psalm began, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, but location now changes. Praise does not, but location does. In verse 7, we have the words, praise the Lord from the earth. And having changed the environment from where the praise originates, the psalmist now starts listing every part of the earthly creation from which praises of God should come. First, he goes to the oceans, the great sea creatures, and the deeps. The deeps themselves praise our God. So also do weather-related phenomena, the fire or the lightning of the sky and the hail and the snow and the rain. The geography of the world is to praise our God. Mountains and hills are praising our Lord. Once the more land-related, environmental-related, environmentally-related structures and conditions are listed, well, then the psalmist next goes on to speak of that which fills the environment as a part of the earth that also praises God. He now speaks of how the vegetation joins in, fruit trees and cedars. The larger animals praise God, beasts and livestock. The smaller ones, creeping things and flying birds. And then once the psalmist gets to humanity, he becomes more specific, but in a manner so as to make it clear that it is really all of the world, all of his human world, that is bound to give praise to God. When you read this part of the psalm, humankind is, a, is presented in a way that makes it apparent that there is really no one who is to be exempt from the requirement of praise. Kings of the earth are to praise him, princes of the world, all the rulers of the earth, as well as all the masses of all the people, all are to praise our God. The young men and the maidens, male and female, the old and the young, old and young are to praise God. The point should be seen that when it comes to mankind, that it is not only the Israelites, God's chosen people who should be praising. At creation, the first man and the first woman were the pinnacle of God's creative work. Both man and woman were, were created in the image of God. And from them, all humanity has spawned. And so it is only appropriate that every breath of all humanity should be given over to God's praise. So what we find in the structure of the psalm 
is that first we see the heavens and that they praise God, the God who has made them. Then we see the earth's environments of land and sea praise God as well. And then the content of the environment praises him. And when it comes to human beings, we are all called to praise our Lord. And that then brings us to the last two verses. Verse 13. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above heaven and earth. The first of these two last verses is a short summary of what the psalmist has already said. All humanity is to praise God because his name, the name of God, is alone to be exalted. There is no other God. This God is to be exalted and creation shows it. He is the one whose majesty is seen over all creation. His majesty is to be praised in all the earth and in all the heavens because this God is over the earth and over the heavens. He has created all the environments and his majesty is over it all. His artistry fills the environments. But though that could end the psalm, it still doesn't. Our psalmist adds this one more verse, verse 14, because although we have every reason, reason already given, already existing, that makes God worthy of our praise, he has given his called people an additional reason, an additional reason to raise our praises to him. Verse 14 adds, he, meaning God, has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the, the, for the people of Israel who are near to him. You see, God has revealed himself especially to his chosen people and revealed himself through his redeeming of these called people into a special relationship with him apart from the rest of the world. In this created realm of various living creatures, God revealed himself to his people by his redemptive love. It's touching how, as the psalmist shifts now to this climactic point, that God's chosen ones are singled out singled out as being ones who are his, his people. They are called his people. They are named his saints, his people who have been set apart. The people of Israel are a people who are described as people who are near to him, near to God. And so this single verse hones in upon Israel's special place in the family of God. And God has done for them what should lead to even greater praise. He's raised up a horn. Now that probably doesn't mean so much to us in our modern world. But in the scriptures, as a general rule, it is a metaphorical, it has a metaphorical meaning. A horn represents in the first place the horn of some domestic animal or wild beast. The horn of an animal like that, a bull perhaps, a rhinoceros, is a sign of its strength and vigor. But what the psalmist is suggesting is to say that the Lord has raised up a horn like that, a horn of strength and vigor for his people Israel. He's either raised the nation as a whole or one person from out of the nation who is to be of strength and vigor and act in a way to benefit the people and doing that in some special way. Now the psalmist really isn't specific here, but whatever God has done in raising up this horn is something that is to engender praise in all his saints, those people who are near to him. 
Perhaps the psalmist is just reminding the people of the way God intervened through Moses and brought the people out of the land of Egypt with all his signs and wonders. Perhaps this is a later written psalm which envisions the work of King David in securing and enlarging the kingdom of Israel. Maybe it's even later still, and it's speaking of Israel's return from exile as they come back to the promised land under the horn of perhaps a one, one who would be like Ezra or Nehemiah or Zerubbabel. It's really difficult in the context of everything that's given here to know exactly what the psalmist has in mind, or even if he has in mind one champion. But I have to think that whatever situation the psalmist might have had in mind in the first place, that there was also a looking forward to the redemption wrought by Jesus Christ, who with meekness sowed such strength and such vigor by going to the cross and the wrath of God for the forgiveness of our sins and then rising from the grave in power as the horn of our salvation who brings to his saints their victory over death, eternal life. The creation was made for the praise of God. Because of our rebellion against God, instead of the whole of the world being devoted to praise, many of the people of the world worship the creature, the creation. They fail to honor God as he ought to be honored. So God sends his son to bring about a new creation, a recreation. Jesus restores all things to himself so that the true Israel of God, people of all nations called to God by God, will praise him with a new song. This psalm, in the end, is a reminder to us all of the world as it should be, a world in harmony of praise to a most holy God, it reminds us of that world, but also how it only becomes that recreated world because of the work of our Savior, because of the work of the horn of our salvation. God has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him, the true Israel of God. What else should we do but praise the Lord? Let's pray.